Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Everyone who had money in the stock market back in 2008 can tell you what a fickle mistress Wall Street is. Wealth comes and goes as if by magic and bubbles appear and burst without warning. On today's show, we talk with two men very familiar with the ins and outs, the ups and downs of the financial world. In the first half of today's show, we speak with Jim Rickards, New York Times bestselling author of The Death of Money, who is an American lawyer, economist, and investment banker who forecasts the transformation of the American dollar from the international currency of choice to merely another national currency like the peso in Mexico or the real in Brazil. As the geopolitical power of the United States declines, so too does its ability to control the rules of the global economic game. We talked to Jim about why the new frontier of war in the 21st century will be financial markets. And then on the second half of today's episode, we speak with Colin Kammerer of the California Institute of Technology. He's a behavioral economist who studied the psychological and neurological bases of choice and strategic decision making. And he's even done brain scans on stock traders to analyze the recognition of bubbles. We're going to talk to him about his actual research on what happens inside the human brain as a financial bubble plays out and the series of speculative euphoria and despair. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz. I'm Justin Ritchie, and this is episode number 79. Capital markets and financial markets and indeed the economy as a whole because it's based on human behavior are best understood as complex systems that have a certain dynamic system analysis to them and capable of organizing into the critical state. So uh, what happens, we see this quite often in natural systems. We see it in earthquakes, sunspots, uh, as I say, other kinds of natural systems. We see it in man-made systems, power grid outages, internet backbone collapses, etc. We see it in capital markets also with one difference, that when the dynamic goes critical and begins to collapse, it is capable of being truncated by policy. And this is exactly what happened in 2008. So we all know the sequence. On March of 2008, Bear Stearns collapsed. 
in June, July of 2008, Fannie and Freddie collapsed, September, you had Lehman Brothers, then AIG. And at that point, the whole system was on the verge of collapse. Morgan Stanley was days away from going bankrupt. Goldman Sachs would have been right behind it. Then Citibank, B of A, who knows whether JP Morgan would have been left standing, but perhaps not. So that was the dynamic, very actually a straightforward analysis. What's different, however, is that government intervention truncated the collapse. So you can think of it as a bunch of dominoes lined up. The first domino tips, it knocks the next one and so forth. So all the dominoes are in the process of falling. But if I drop a steel wall between two dominoes, one's going to hit the wall and the other one on the other side is going to be standing. And that's what the Fed did. You know, Since 2008, they've printed almost $4 trillion of new money. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. They've done tens of trillions of dollars of swaps with the European Central Bank. You know, the European banks had enormous amounts of dollar liabilities because they owe dollars to U.S. money market funds. The European Central Bank can print euros, but it can't print dollars, so it had no way to bail out their own banks from the dollar liabilities. So what happened was the European Central Bank printed euros, the Fed printed dollars, they swapped the euros for the dollars, that gave the European Central Bank dollars to bail out its own banks, et cetera. Between the Fed and the FDIC, they guaranteed every bank deposit in America, they guaranteed the money market funds, et cetera. So there was this enormous, enormous tens and scores of trillions of dollars of intervention that was in effect dropping the steel curtain between two dominoes and preventing what otherwise would have been a fairly easy to analyze collapse. Now, come forward to today, all we heard about in 2008 was, you know, too big to fail, too big to fail. The five largest banks in the United States in 2008 today are larger. They have a higher percentage of the total banking assets. They have much larger derivatives books. In other words, all the things that were dangerous in 2008 are more dangerous today. And if you understand critical state dynamics, you understand that when you increase the scale of a system, scale is just a fancy word for size. When you increase the scale of a system, the risk goes up not in a linear way, but in an exponential way. So if you triple the scale of the system, you're increasing the risk by a factor of 10 or, or 20 or more. So put all this together, and what we have is you know, nothing was solved in 2008. It was truncated by government intervention to the tune of tens of trillions of dollars. The system is more dangerous and potentially unstable today. But here's the difference, and here's why it will play out differently from past forecast when the next liquidity crisis comes and it will come sooner than later you know you go back over the last 30 years look at you know October 19 1987 the Mexican peso collapse in 1994 the Thailand Asia collapse in 97 the Russia long-term capital management collapse in 1998 the dot-com bubble in 2000 the mortgage collapse in 2007, the panic of 2008. So clearly these events happen every, you know, five, six, seven years with some some frequency. When it happens the next time, it's going to be bigger than the Fed because of the system dynamics and the scaling metrics that I just described. It's going to exceed the ability of the Fed to deal with it because, as I say, they printed $4 trillion to deal with the last one. What are they going to do the next time? print $8 trillion, $12 trillion. There is some limit. There's actually not a legal limit, but there's some confidence limit or political limit on what the Fed is going to be able to do. So the next time it happens, which will be sooner than later, you're going to have a 30-foot tsunami coming up against a 5-foot seawall. The tsunami is going to win. It's going to overwhelm the balance sheets of the central banks. The central banks, you know, I'll take the Federal Reserve, for example. Right now, it's leveraged 80 to 1. It's insolvent on a mark-to-market basis, and that's not speculation. I've actually had that conversation with an FOMC member who confirmed that to me, not publicly, of course, but in a private conversation. You said 80 to 1? 80 to 1, sure. Wow. The, the Fed has... 
Well, it has $4 trillion of assets and about $60 billion of capital. So that's about 80 to 1 leverage. But the other central banks in worse shape. The People's Bank of China has printed more money than the Fed in the last five years. So all the central banks are insolvent. They're at the outer limit of what they can do. The crisis will come. It'll be bigger than anything in the past because of the complex critical state dynamics and scaling metrics I mentioned. It'll overwhelm the central banks. There's only one clean balance sheet left in the world. That's the IMF. The IMF is only leveraged about three to one. So they'll bring out their world money, which is the special drawing right or SDR. We can talk more about that if you like, but that'll be the end of the dollar. So I mean, this is all baked in the pie. I'm not talking about future blunders that may cause this. The blunders have already happened. We're just waiting for the catalyst. So every 30 to 40 years, there's one of these collapses. This is nothing new. And our monetary system in the United States has collapsed a few times. And you mentioned those in your book. Is there anything different about this collapse? You mentioned that it's just so big right now that, that it, you can't really even print as much money as we're going to need to do it. But you said also that there's no limit to what banks can print or that what the Fed can print. What is going to be different around this collapse? Sure, there's no legal limit, but there is a confidence limit and a political limit. For example, you know, Rand Paul, I expect, will run for president in 2016. Rand Paul has said publicly that the Fed is insolvent. He said that in a speech on the floor of the Senate in January in connection with Janet Yellen's confirmation. He actually referred to me by name and my first book, Currency Wars. And so he's going to make this a campaign issue. If you think that bailing out banks in 2008 was unpopular, where do we conversation turns to? bailing out the Fed, because as I say, the Fed is insolvent on a mark-to-market basis. So central bankers may choose to ignore this. The eggheads and the PhD may think it doesn't matter. In fact, I've spoken to them and some of them, and, and they think it doesn't matter. When I raised this issue of Fed insolvency with some of the PhDs, they kind of shrug and say, well, central banks don't need capital. We'll see about that. I think they probably do just to inspire confidence. You know, I get roped into a lot of Bitcoin debates. Bitcoin is one of my least favorite subjects, but I talk about gold a lot and people seem to like to have Bitcoin versus gold debates. So I've had to become a bit of an expert on Bitcoin to hold up my end of that. And people say, you know, Bitcoin's not backed by anything. And likewise, they say the dollar is not backed by anything, but that's not true. It is backed by one thing, which is confidence. The problem is confidence is fragile. It can be lost very easily. Once it's lost, it's almost impossible to regain. And one of the flaws in the central bank's way of thinking is they take confidence for granted. They assume would always be there and that they can push and push and push and not erode confidence. But history says that's not true. People are already nervous about the Fed. They're already moving to hard assets. Certainly, there's no better example than China. You know, China's bought perhaps 3,000 tons of gold in the last four years. There's very good evidence for that, by the way. It's all in Chapter 9 and Chapter 11 of my book, The Death of Money. So it's very well documented. You know, why is China doing that? Are they stupid or do they know something the rest of us don't? I'm going to suggest that they see something coming that a lot of people may not see coming, which is this collapse of confidence. And they're building up their gold reserves as a hedge. And so everyday investors can do the same thing. But there's there's just no way politically or from a confidence perspective that the Fed can print enough money to bail out the world the next time. And so that money is going to have to come from the IMF. There's no one else it could come from. So you mentioned that a lot of the kind of system architects, the PhDs who run these institutions like the Fed, they're essentially taking the confidence for granted. But we know from history that confidence collapses do occur and currency regimes do fall. What do you think we can learn from the past collapses in the international monetary regime that can teach us some lessons about how this one may play out? 
Well, I think you put your finger on it. The collapses occur with regularity and not always at the end of the currency. The currency, I, I think the dollar will still be around after the collapse. You know, maybe I should put that in perspective. You know, as I mentioned, the uh, international monetary system actually has collapsed three times in the past 100 years, 1914, 1939, and 1971. So these things do happen every 30 or 40 years. It's been over 40 years since the last one. That doesn't mean it happens like clockwork tomorrow morning. But what it does mean is that if the useful life of an international monetary system is about 30 or 40 years, or probably uh, should not come as any surprise if the current system collapses sooner than later. Now, when this happens, it doesn't mean the end of the world. It doesn't mean that we all go live in caves and eat canned goods. It doesn't even mean that the currency goes away. What it does mean is that the major financial, economic, and trading powers get together around the table and they rewrite what they call the rules of the game. Uh, the rules of the game is not my phrase. That phrase has been around for 100 years. It's what elites choose to refer to as shorthand for the kind of the operating system of the international monetary system. So after the collapse in 1914, then the powers came together in 1922 in Genoa, Italy, and they came up with a new system. After the collapse in 1939, the major powers came together in 1944 in Bretton Woods. They came up with a new system. And after the collapse in 1971, the powers came together in a series of meetings, not just one, but beginning with the Smithsonian Agreement in December 1971 and then continuing through the Jamaican meetings at the IMF in the mid-70s and then ultimately the Plaza and Louisville Accords in the early 1980s. So that's what happens. And so when the next collapse comes, there'll be this International Monetary Conference. Now, the dollar will still be around, but it'll be sort of like a local currency. It'll be like Mexican pesos or Turkish lira. You know, you'll need them for walking around money in the United States the same way I might buy Mexican pesos if I go to Mexico. But it won't be used for the big things. And when I say the big things, I mean specifically the price of oil, the price of gold, settlement of balance of payments between countries, and probably the financial statements of the 100 or so largest corporations in the world. So in the future, when you look at a company like Volkswagen or Siemens or IBM or General Electric, and you get your annual report, it'll all be stated in SDRs and likewise, you know, gold and oil and some other commodities will be quoted in SDR. So this will be the new world money. So like I said, it doesn't mean the dollar disappears completely. It just loses its role as the global reserve currency. And that greatly diminishes the power and national security of the United States in a geopolitical sense. So everything we're talking about, the implications are not just monetary and economic. They have huge uh, geopolitical aspects also. Has there ever been a time in history where we've moved to some kind of world currency like you're talking about with the IMF fund? Well, yes, but it would be gold. So the certainly the height of the the Venetian Empire in the 13th and 14th centuries, the Venetian ducat, a gold ducat, was a world money. Certainly the the Roman gold coin was world money. The Something called the Solidus, uh, which was an Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantine gold coin was money good for almost a thousand years from around the 4th century AD up until probably around the 13th century AD, so probably about 900 years. So yes, we have had world money in the past, but it's always been gold gold minute by a major imperial power. We've never had a paper world money, but we already have one. It's not in wide circulation and there's not a large pool of investable assets, but the IMF special drawing right, the SDR, it is world money. 
has been around since 1969. It's been issued in a number of tranches, most recently in 2009. I'm not coincidentally, there had been no issues of SDRs between 1980 and 2009. Why was that? Well, there were no global monetary crises between 1980 and 2009. You had individual crises. There was a sterling crisis in the early 90s, and certainly some emerging market currencies collapsed. We saw this in Argentina and Zimbabwe and elsewhere, but there was no global financial crisis as there was in the late 70s and as there was in 2007, 2008. So it's no coincidence that the IMF trots out the SDR to reliquify the world at a time when there's a global liquidity crisis. Now, you know, the name itself kind of gives away the game. I mean, special drawing rights is, can you think of a more anodyne name, something that will really be incredibly boring and make your head hurt, let alone the SDR? I mean, I, I've met international monetary economists who can't give you a proper explanation of SDRs. But the name was chosen on purpose to be boring. I mean, can you imagine if they had called it world money? You imagine how spooky and scary it would sound. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's the same thing with the Federal Reserve. I mean, why is the Federal Reserve not called the Central Bank of the United States? as the Bank of England or the Bank of Japan or the People's Bank of China, et cetera. Well, the reason is that the American people hate central banks. They had two of them in the past, and they got rid of both of them. So when leading kind of Wall Street and Washington insiders wanted to create a central bank, they said, well, we better not call it that because we need to pull the wool over people's eyes. So we'll call it the Federal Reserve, and what the heck is that? Very few people understand the Federal Reserve, for that matter. I mean, we do, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do, but everyday Americans think it's – who knows what? A fancy building in Washington or something like that. Correct. So the point being, they pick these names on purpose to fool people into not understanding what they really are. But the SDR is world money. You know, the, the Fed has a printing press. They can print dollars. The European Central Bank has a printing press. They can print euros. And the IMF has a printing press. They can print world money called the SDR. And they have done it in the past. And they'll do it again. So I know you like to run scenarios. Could we uh, run a scenario here? It's 2018. The Fed is bankrupt again. IMF is going to come in here like they do in so many third world countries and bail out the Fed. Could this ever happen? Could we ever see something like this? The IMF coming in, issuing SDRs as the currency there and making the dollar kind of just evaporate a little bit? Well, yes and no. They won't bail out the Fed. They will reliquify the world. Now, just to be clear, and I've spoken to top officials at the IMF about this, they don't view the SDR as something that they will use to solve structural problems and for routine bailouts. They use hard currency loans for that. But it is a liquidity tool. So you won't see the SDR pumped out until there's a liquidity crisis. But that is what we had in 2008. As I mentioned earlier, we can expect one again sooner than later. So what they'll do, they issue them to countries. They won't issue them to the Federal Reserve. They'll issue them to IMF members. So they'll actually issue them to the U.S. Treasury as fiscal agent for the United States of America. But they issue them to all the members based on your quota. Your quota is kind of like your stock in the IMF. You know, the United States has a about a 16% quota all the other countries in the world add up to about 84%. By the way, that's one of the big political issues in Washington right now is China and some of the emerging markets are trying to increase their quota. But since all the quotas together can only add up to 100%, if you want to increase China, that means you got to take votes away from somebody such as the Netherlands or Belgium. And there's a whole kind of behind-the-scenes negotiation going on there. But, you know, leaving that to one side, the SDRs will be issued in proportion to your quotas. So let's just say they issue $5 trillion, $5 trillion SDRs. Uh, by the way, for the listeners, an SDR is about $1.55, so... 
five trillion SDRs would be a little over close to eight trillion dollars equivalent. So in other words, twice as much money as the Fed has printed in the last four years. So they'll hand them out and the U.S. would get 16% of that. Now, once you have your SDRs, it's just money. And what do you do with it? Well, you can pay your debts with it. What if your debts are in dollars? So what you have to do is you have to swap SDRs for dollars with another member. And believe it or not, the IMF inside the IMF has an SDR trading facility designed to do exactly this. And it's been used recently. Some of the countries that got SDRs in 2009. I'll use Hungary for an example. Hungary had a lot of Swiss franc debt because their consumers borrowed Swiss francs from Austrian banks to get mortgages because the interest rate was only 1%. Of course, they assumed that the Hungarian florin would be fixed to the Swiss franc. That turned out not to be true. So when it was devalued, their mortgages were kind of doubled, but they needed Swiss francs. So a country like Hungary could go to the IMF, offer SDRs that had been issued, say, you know, what am I bid? The trading desk will call a place like China that wants SDRs and wants to dump dollars. So China will buy Hungarian SDRs for dollars. Hungary will take the dollars, buy Swiss francs spot, and then use the Swiss francs to pay off the Swiss bank. So that's how it operates behind the scenes. And so it'll be free money, liquidity. It won't really do much for the Fed. The Fed will continue its operations. But as I say, it'll be a dollar printing factory in a world where the dollar doesn't matter. So maybe I'm a little naive, but who's in charge of the IF? How's how's that body governed? Well, it's not elected, I can tell you that, and it's not accountable, and it's not democratic. They have a 24-person executive committee. The members of that committee look a lot like the G20, so it's the major kind of G7 economic powers, plus the BRICS, plus a few other countries. And so there's a pretty good synchronicity or overlap, if you will, between the 24 members of the executive committee and the members of the G20. They do get to vote in accordance with these quotas, as I described. But, you know, you look at the membership where you've got kings, dictators, communists, there's no accountability, there's no election, there's no democracy. So, and it's self-perpetuating because they pick new members and they vote for themselves. And so it's just one of these strange multilateral institutions that has its own charter, its own articles of agreement. I'm just enough of a geek to actually have read those articles, so I'm very expert in it, but I don't blame people who don't bother to go that far. But the point being, it's sort of a freestanding, unaccountable, multilateral body that looks a lot like the G20. That's one of the reasons I don't think the G20 is a joke. When the G20 meets, it's tantamount to a board of directors meeting of the IMF. In fact, the IMF met recently. They met in Washington in the second weekend of April, April 11th, 12th, and 13th. And, you know, when the IMF meets, the finance ministers and central bankers come in from around the world. So they'll do G20 on the side, BRICS on the side, et cetera, which they did. And then they had an unannounced secret meeting on the Sunday following the regular Friday-Saturday meeting. This was April 12th or 13th. I'm checking on the day, but it was that second weekend in April. And they had a secret meeting to talk about the future of the international monetary system. So it's really a dry run for a new Bretton Woods. They did issue a press release on this. That's how we know about it. And they said that the head of the BIS was there. The BIS is the Bank for International Settlements. That's the central banker's central bank. 
another secret of body based in Basel, Switzerland. And then also the head of the Swiss National Bank was there. And then they said there were a number of distinguished academics and interested parties. They did not disclose who the names were. I mean, I'm guessing here, but it wouldn't surprise me if people like Mohammed Arian were in the room. But they did say publicly, this, again, this is, this is not invented. You can go to the IMF website. You can find these press releases. You can find these studies. And uh, they did say they were talking about the future of the international monetary system. So I view this as a secret meeting to I run for the new Bretton Woods. So what we're talking about are lots of meetings and discussions between world leaders and world powers to structure this new currency regime that emerges from the failure of the post-Bretton Woods regime that we've been in right now. But what do you think the headlines in the news or life on the street will be like as this plays out? Is this like a one-day kind of thing where suddenly, you know, you see in the New York Times, U.S. dollar collapses, international monetary regime falling apart? Or will this play out kind of over a series of years with kind of shock points that are very noticeable. Yeah, I don't think it'll be years. It might be months or a year. The, the thing is, it won't happen at all unless there's a crisis. And when the crisis comes, they'll need to respond quickly. This goes along with something Naomi Klein has called the shock doctrine. And the shock doctrine says you use a crisis to pursue a hidden agenda. And, you know, the most famous articulation of this was Rahm Emanuel, chief of staff early in the Obama administration in 2009. Actually, it was late 2008 during the transition when he said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And they didn't. They passed an 800 billion dollar stimulus bill that didn't stimulate anything, but it was a great way to spend money on pet causes. And they did that under the guise of helping the economy out of the financial panic of 2008. So first the panic will come, then the IMF will have a meeting, the kind I described. And by the way, gold will play a very important part in this. I'm not saying that we will go straight to a gold standard. In fact, there's no central bank in the world that wants a gold standard. But if you think of this meeting as a game of Texas Hold'em poker game, you're going to want a big pile of chips in front of you when you sit down to play poker. And gold are going to be your poker chips. So whether or not we have a gold standard, gold will determine your seat at the table, which is one of the reasons China's acquiring so much gold because they want a large voice when the time comes. But they will then reform the system. I mean, there is a 10-year plan to make the SDR the gold reserve currency. That plan was announced on January 7, 2011 in a paper issued by the IMF. So that plan is, is there, but that's a long-term plan. But what I'm suggesting is that we won't make it that far. There'll be a crisis in the meantime, and the SDR will be rolled out on an emergency basis, and then that will all happen very quickly. IMF money does not come free. The IMF lends financing to countries, provided that countries do for themselves what they need to do to restore the economy, to be able to finance themselves without our support. Reset in the sense that those accommodating monetary policies have to be reformulated, but that's first reset. Second reset is the one which is the financial sector reform and regulatory environment that is clearly undergoing a major reset at the moment. And the final reset, those structural reforms that are necessary in all corners of the world. A real financial reform would have been to ban certain kinds of derivatives, ban collateralized debt obligations, 
ban credit default swaps, put a 1% tax on Wall Street turnover, a sales tax. For a country with a budget deficit in excess of $1 trillion a year, the consequences of the U.S. losing its rank as the world's reserve currency could be severe. But for now, markets aren't acting like the U.S. dollar is in trouble. Some wonder how long this will last. People have tried to look at studies to, of events to figure out what size of QE would actually be needed, and it's on the order of $8 trillion, $10 trillion of bond purchases by the Fed. Our guest today is whistleblower Karen Hughes, former senior counselor at the World Bank. There is a terrible uh, currency problem. We're on the verge of a currency war. The uh, Federal Reserve is printing dollars like there's no tomorrow. And if they keep going, the rest of the world is not going to accept them. As it is, the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, have decided that they're going to finance the trade among these countries with offsets and pay for the difference in gold. What's financial warfare? It's the use of financial power and influence uh, to attack our enemies and to ensure that America's and national security interests are, are met, Charlie. And post 9-11, this became an integral part of how we did business. And how do you do it? You do it by enlisting the private sector. You isolate uh, the ability of our enemies to access banks their ability to engage in commercial activity. And in a globalized system, it's really not just about freezing their assets or following the money, but also not giving them access to a globalized system. But this is the thing that people should know about you. You were in the room after 9-11. You were in the room when all this planning started. And you guys were told to do what? The Treasury Department was told to use all its power influence tools to go after al-Qaeda and terrorist groups' financial infrastructure disrupt, dismantle this group so they can't attack again, but also so they can't attack in the future. Mm -hmm. That spawned a whole new set of tools and paradigms as to how to go after our enemies. And it wasn't just how we used it against al-Qaeda. It became how we used it against Iran, North Korea, organized crime groups, drug cartels. It's now an integral part of how the national security mm -hmm. of the United yeah. States is thought about. I don't particularly like saying any of this because I'm an American citizen and an American taxpayer and an American voter. but. If you drive people away from the dollar, many people now must be sitting there saying, gosh, if we have U.S. dollars and the U.S. decides they don't like us, they're going to put sanctions on us. So people, more and more people will say, maybe I shouldn't use the U.S. dollar. Maybe I shouldn't have my, my money in, in U.S. dollars. At the same time, as you know, Russia and China are now going to trade with each other in their own currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. More and more people are doing the same thing. They're starting to trade in other currencies besides the U.S. dollar. This is just a continuing long-term move away from the U.S. dollar. And I'm afraid that the U.S. is pushing people away from the U.S. dollar with our actions. If he had money, if you like, is backed by men, men with guns. You're listening to episode number 79 of The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with author Jim Rickards about his new book, The Death of Money, The Coming Collapse of the International Monetary System. Now, a lot of what's happening in international politics at the moment reminds me of reading what life was very much like in the years leading up to World War One, where kind of empires were reaching the end of their life and kind of staking their claim on how things shape up as everything broke down and there were revolutions and uprisings all around the world. Now, what you've written about in your book, The Death of Money, is that 
perhaps the next world war won't necessarily be fought with aircraft carriers or troops on the ground, but financial markets and currencies. Could you explain a little bit about what you mean in that regard? Sure. And that's already happening. And you write about the 1914, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they were very good at festivals and nice military parades, but they were kind of rotten on the inside and fell very quickly along with the Russian Empire, the Tsar, the German Empire, the Kaiser, the Ottoman Empire, the Sultan, all those empires fell in stages between 1914 and 1920. So there's a lot of recollection of that right now because we're on the 100th anniversary of all that that all happened beginning in 1914. But we are in several financial wars today. They don't get much note because it's technical and it happens behind the scenes. I talk about this in in both of my books, uh, In Currency Wars, uh, my first book, which came out in 2011, the first two chapters are devoted to the first ever financial war game conducted by the Pentagon at a top secret weapons laboratory just outside of Washington. I was invited by the military to be part of the game design team, one of the facilitators of the game, and then I actually got to play the game itself on the China team. And, of course, the Pentagon had been doing war games forever. They didn't need any help from me on that, but this was the first financial war game, which meant that you could not use any weapons, any so-called kinetic weapons, nothing that would shoot or explode or fly. You had to use uh, financial weapons, so stocks, bonds, commodities, derivatives, foreign exchange, to try to enhance your own power and weaken the power of your rivals. And we played this out over two days. We had a China team and a Russia team and the U.S. team, which you would expect. But we also had a team composed of banks and hedge funds because there are players in this landscape and hedge funds can even be propped up by sovereign wealth funds and act as uh, sort of sleeper cells or fronts for the conduct of financial warfare by sovereign states. And in that scenario, we, with some others, we concocted a plan where Russia and China combined their gold reserves in a Swiss vault, created a London bank of issue that would issue a new currency backed by the gold. And henceforth, Russian natural resource exports and Chinese manufactured goods could only be paid for in this new currency, which you could get by trading with them. You could earn some or you could deposit your own gold and get the currency. And this was a way of turning their back on the dollar and undermining the dollar's role as the leading reserve currency. Now, obviously, this was a stretch at the time. That's the point of a war game to think of out of the box scenarios, kind of give the, the Pentagon their money's worth. Now, when my colleagues and I introduced this gold scenario, we were left at by you know, the Harvard types and the egghead types, they said, you know, this is ridiculous. Don't you know that gold's not part of the international monetary system? Why are you doing this? You're wasting our time, etc. But we played it out anyway with some very interesting results. And I talk about this in currency wars. Since then, since 2009, Russia has increased its gold reserves 70%. China has increased its gold reserves several hundred percent. So their real world behavior has synced up very closely with what we warned the Pentagon about in 2009. So I don't hear them laughing now. Again, I hope the readers are, are interested in that. Now, my new book, In chapter two, I talk about financial war. The U.S. has been at financial war with Iran since 2012. We kicked Iran out of the dollar payment system, which we control through the Fed and the Treasury, so they couldn't transfer any dollars or get paid in dollars. Then with our European allies, we kicked them out of the international payment system, something called SWIFT based in Belgium, so they couldn't get paid in euros or Swiss francs or yen or any other strong currency that you would actually want. So Iran was in the position that they could ship oil but they couldn't get paid for it, at least not in a reserve currency. They were doing barter deals, gold for oil. They were shipping oil to India and getting paid in Indian rupees and local banks. 
banks that didn't have to go through SWIFT, et cetera. And they did some workarounds using Chinese and Russian banks as fronts, but it made life extremely difficult for Iran. We were actually winning that war. We were causing hyperinflation, bank panics, scarcity, et cetera, a lot of hardship in Iran. But the president decided in the last December 2013 to call a truce, have a kind of detente with Iran, free up some of their frozen assets and withdraw the sanctions. Don't think that Putin didn't notice. Now, flash forward to the Crimea situation. Russia has invaded Crimea. No one left, right, or center thinks that the U.S. should intervene militarily. That's not going to happen. But the U.S. has decided to confront Russia with economic sanctions, which are a form of financial warfare. There's a big difference between Russia and Iran. The difference is that Russia can fight back. Not only fight back, but they can inflict a lot of harm on the United States, probably more harm than we can inflict on them. They can dump U.S. treasuries, drive up U.S. interest rates, hurt our housing market, hurt our stock market, freeze U.S. assets in Russia, which there are plenty, and at the extreme, unleash their hackers and shut the New York Stock Exchange. So we're back to a situation. You mentioned World War I. I think there are a lot of lessons in history, and World War I is an analog, but a better analog perhaps is the Cold War doctrine, a mutual assured destruction, the so-called MAD doctrine. And the way this works, is you go back to the 60s and 70s, I'll use Russia instead of the Soviet Union. It was technically the Soviet Union at the time, but really Russia. The U.S. had enough missiles to destroy Russia. Russia had enough missiles to destroy the United States. And this was highly unstable because the temptation was to shoot first, wipe out the other guy, and you win. So each side engaged in an arms race to acquire more and more missiles, which they could use for a so-called second strike capability. So if one attacked the other, the victim would have enough missiles left over to shoot back, and both sides would be destroyed. We call this two scorpions in a bottle. You know, if you have two scorpions in a bottle, one stings the other, the victim will die, but has enough strength left to sting back and they both die. So that's what preserved the peace during the Cold War. So now we're in this age of what I call mutual short financial destruction, where if the U.S. escalates the sanctions on Russia beyond a certain point, Russia will strike back in very powerful ways. The U.S. might then escalate further, and you could end up in a scenario where, as I say, hackers close the New York Stock Exchange with catastrophic results for our economy. Now, some people are skeptical of this, and they say, oh, that would never happen. And I point out that August 22, 2013, the NASDAQ was closed for half a day. We've never been offered an explanation as to what happened there. Was it Syrian hackers, Iranian hackers? Russian hackers who were practicing. If it were some computer problem, why haven't they told us? And if it was hackers, there's good reason not to tell us because it would panic investors all over the world. Be that as it may, the Russian hackers certainly have that capability. And then people say to me, well, surely the U.S. hackers are just as good. We can shut down the Moscow Stock Exchange. And I say, well, of course we could. But who wins? You know, they shut down New York. We shut down Moscow. Moscow is irrelevant, but New York isn't. And so the Russians would win a hacking war, a cyber war like that. And this is where the convergence of cyber threats and financial threats. So, yes, I do think financial war is the future of warfare. We're in two wars already, one with Iran, one with Russia. The Iranian one is at sort of a little bit of a truce right now. The Russian one is just at the beginning stages. We'll see how it escalates. But if you combine these threats with all the things we talked about earlier in the interview about scaling metrics, systemic risk, the fact that central bankers are using the wrong models, the fact that they take confidence for granted, and other things going on in the world, China's drive for gold, Saudi Arabia walking away from the petrodollar deal because we stabbed them in the back by having detente with Iran. These threats are coming from all directions, so you can see this leading. It's easy to see the catastrophic collapse coming. What I'm trying to do for investors is warn them, give them the 
analysis so they can understand it for themselves, give them an intellectual toolkit, and most importantly, give some investment recommendations that people can use to preserve wealth when this all plays out. So I understand what you're talking about, these big financial bombs kind of dropping on our markets. You know, New York shuts down, Moscow shuts down. But what does this look like on the ground? What are people seeing? Are we seeing our prices of our food skyrocketing? Are we seeing our gas not being refilled, the prices on that going up, air flights going down, and businesses shutting down? What is going to be happening to the people on the ground? Well, I think you'll see two things. When the financial panic starts, you'll see a flight from risky assets. So this will look like 2008, but worse. So people will be dumping stocks. They'll be dumping you know, really everything they can, bonds, et cetera, trying to get into hard assets. By the way, the guy who's way ahead of the curve here is Warren Buffett. You know, Warren Buffett comes off as this sort of avuncular folksy figure from the Midwest who loves his stock portfolios. But if you look at what he's actually been doing, a few years ago, he bought the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. Uh, he bought the whole thing and took it private. Well, what is a railroad? A railroad is all hard assets. It's land, track, mining rights adjacent to the right-of-way, rolling stock, rail, yards, switches, signals, etc. It's all hard assets. How does a railroad make money? It moves hard assets as freight, you know, corn, wheat, coal, steel, etc. So a railroad is nothing more than a bunch of hard assets that makes money moving hard assets. Buffett's next big acquisition were oil and gas reserves. And by the way, he can move the oil on his own railroad. He doesn't need the Keystone Pipeline. If you line up 100 tanker cars, that's a pipeline on wheels. So Warren Buffett is a guy who's dumping paper money as fast as he can, getting it into hard assets such as transportation, oil, and other resources, etc. So he's ready. And what people don't understand is that when capital markets collapse – a railroad is still a railroad. The dollar can go to zero, but your railroad is still valuable because it is tangible the same way gold, fine art, land, and other things are tangible. So Buffett is getting ready for this, even though he won't talk about it. I see others getting ready as well. And so for the average investor, you will see this financial panic, crashing markets, easily see the stock market going down 50% or more, a massive loss of wealth. But then beyond that, there'll be this kind of panic buying of gold. Everyday investors will not be able to get gold. They'll find that the mint stops shipping it, the local dealer has run out. The big guys will get gold, you know, billionaires and hedge funds and central banks and sovereign wealth funds. They'll be getting gold at four, five, six thousand dollars an ounce. But the everyday investor who goes out then to get gold won't be able to get any at any price because it won't be available. So the time to do that is now. The other effect will be highly inflationary. If you print up five trillion dollars equivalent of SDRs and hand them out, that money's going to get used and it will as I say, be highly inflationary. The good thing about the IMF from the point of view of U.S. politicians, they'll be able to blame the inflation on the IMF and nobody will understand it. They'll say, oh, it's not us. You know, it's not the U.S. It's not the Treasury. It's not the Fed. It's those guys over there on G Street or wherever they are in Washington, uh, the, that unaccountable IMF. So there'll be a convenient scapegoat. But the effects will be play from risky assets, a panic buying of hard assets, except you won't be able to get them if you're the everyday guy, and then finally hyperinflation. Looking at this from the perspective of someone who has some capital assets is one way of looking at it, but a lot of millennials and youth don't have any hard assets or even the kind of capital resources where they could acquire something like gold. How could they prepare for this international monetary regime unwind that we've been discussing? 
Well, the best way is through education. Education is the ultimate hard asset. It's something that will do well in inflation. If you can make a certain amount of money with your talent today and there's hyperinflation, you'll be able to go out tomorrow after the hyperinflation and make a lot more money with the same talent and the same education. So I certainly recommend that. And look for my billionaire friends in Greenwich. They've all got plenty of gold. A lot of it's stashed away in private vaults they build in their own homes. For the guy with 10 million, he should have 1 million of that in physical gold. For someone with 100,000, you should have 10,000 in gold. But, you know, I ran into a taxi driver in Las Vegas not long ago, and she said, hey, I've only got $10,000 in the bank. I said, well, you know, go out and buy one gold coin from a reputable dealer. That'll be uh, today's prices. That'll be 13% of your investable assets in gold. That's about the right amount. And no matter what happens to the rest of it, this will be your insurance. So even someone with as little as $10,000 can buy one gold coin, put it in a safe place, and they'll have inflation insurance that will serve them very well. And oh, sweet bubbles, you make me feel so good. All the pain, all the bad, all the aching and the sad got glad when I came to you. Next, on episode number 79 of The Extra Environmentalist, we speak to Colin Kammerer of Caltech on what happens inside the human brain as financial bubbles burst. Oh, you sweet bubbles, you make me feel so good. Oh, sweet bubbles, you make me feel so good. When I was 12, I started going to the horse racing with my dad and a very close friend of his who was a financial analyst for a big investment company. And so the first thing I I learned was horse racing and stock markets are very similar. You have a lot of information, sometimes not very much, sometimes a tremendous amount, and you're trying to not just figure out which horse will win or which stock will go up, but you're trying to beat the crowd. So in horse racing, the odds are kind of set so that you're actually betting against other people. And of course, in stocks, it's kind of the same way. And I think that early imprinting, they call it in pathological gambling literature, got me just really curious about understanding these systems. Uh, Fast forward to graduate school. So I went to the University of Chicago Business School to get a PhD. And I was originally studying finance, but I literally asked Eugene Fama, who's the Nobel Prize winner last year. Efficient markets hypothesis. uh, Correct, of efficient markets fame. You know, I want to study market psychology in my dissertation. And he said, well, what's that? And I thought, well, if he doesn't understand, maybe I should leave this topic aside a bit. So I kind of switched to pure behavioral science and then later began doing experiments in economics where you could see behavioral and rational forces, you know, both in evidence and kind of measure and compare them. And I didn't get back to price bubbles for a while, but we began running some experiments in the late 80s. But we didn't at that time know much or have tools to measure biological forces. And also, to be honest, the professional journals, which were the target of our research, you know, peer-reviewed journals, really were either hostile or confused about what bubbles are and whether they should be called rational. And if you didn't have students doing it in a simple lab, would you get different behavior? So we kind of put it aside for a while. In your review of the field and looking at kind of the broader scope of all the research that's been going on into financial bubbles and what causes them, what are some of the explanations for why bubbles actually occur? Well, I would say there there are basically kind of three classes. One is psychological explanations. There's something about euphoria or crowd psychology that makes prices go higher and higher and higher. 
And there are a lot of old examples like that. There's a famous book by Charles McKay on the kind of madness of crowds. And so there are many historical examples. The problem is that's been very slippery scientifically because there's almost no measurement of exactly what people are saying to one another and are they actually panicking in a biological sense. Now we're able to actually come back to all those ideas and measure all the stuff you'd like to measure, including language and talking to people, investment chat rooms, biological things that are happening. So we're better equipped scientifically to revisit that. So that's one class of explanations, psychological. Another class that's important, but probably in a very specialized way, is what we call in finance microstructure, which is how exactly are trades taking place and who's trading for whom. So for example, if you allocate your money to an investment manager, the investment manager might choose to participate in bubbles because if, if everyone else is and they don't get in the bubble stocks, your returns are going to be low and you're going to move your money away. So even if they know better, the reward structure is such that they're going to participate anyways. That's correct. That's correct. And also it may be, it may be difficult, for example, if there's a tech stock like Twitter or Uber, which is publicly traded, and you think it's way too high, in order to bet against that, you have to sell your shares or short sell. Short selling means you basically borrow shares from somebody and agree to pay them back at a certain time. And often it's very difficult to actually borrow shares. And investment companies are a little reluctant to do that because if you borrow shares and short at 10 and the stock goes to 50, you've lost 500% of your money, which is different than if you buy a stock and it goes bankrupt. And so there's a lot of downside risk. And many funds have actually blown up, as they say, by taking big short positions and then they may even be right that the stock is in a bubble, but if the bubble continues for a while longer, they're going to be wiped out. So you could be smart but poor in shorting some of these things. So that means that often prices lift off and there isn't much selling pressure coming in to deflate the bubble. Even really smart people like to think that they're contrarians and that they have the ability to spot a bubble. But then there's this whole dynamic where I think you're getting at it a little bit in your research, where if people see the price going up, even though they know they're in the bubble, they think this may keep going for quite a while and they want to get those investment returns that are possible. Is that part of human nature? Do you think it's kind of like a keeping up with the Joneses mentality? Or what do you think it is about humans that makes us kind of want to participate in these things. Yeah, I think there are two things pretty deep in human nature and in the nature of animals, you know, from which we evolved, which is imitation and conformity desire. And, you know, that could be very adaptive in a group of chimpanzees hunting in the forest or flamingos who are very skittish and one flamingo flies away when they sense a threat and the other flamingos all fly too. So herd behavior is a, a pretty ubiquitous thing and it would be shocking if humans didn't exhibit some tendencies of that kind. And the other kind may have to do with, with status concerns about consumption returns. So if everybody in the office is bragging about how much they made on tech stocks, people think, I need to make some money on tech stocks too. So another way to put it is being a contrarian requires you to do things which are really emotionally difficult. For example, in our experiments, the, the traders who earn the most money are actually selling because they can only sell so much each time, you have to kind of start to sell well before the peak of the bubble. So if they were sitting there talking to each other, their friends would be ridiculing them. Why are you selling and the price keeps rising? So you have to sell against a rising market. And we sometimes say, this kind of not too literally, the cortex has to kind of override the emotional system and maintain your faith in your idea. Mm-hmm. And 
there's kind of in the economics profession this battle a little bit between the more efficient markets hypothesis side that says that bubbles may not even exist or how can you even spot them if they're happening and then the like Robert Schiller side that's saying bubbles and behavioral finance and behavioral psychology has a huge role to play how does your research kind of fit into those two camps and, and the dialogue yeah that's the crucial question in many ways and the Nobel Prize last year was kind of ironic because Fama and Schiller shared it. I think that's quite reasonable. They both contributed really dramatic ideas. Now, the fact that their ideas kind of completely cancel each other out, it just means we haven't figured out who's right and who's wrong. Fama's view is basically, look, if you think you find an easy way to beat the market or kind of type in information that's not in prices, you probably have not. And most people agree that that's true. At the same time, you could have not just transitory small bubbles, but extremely large housing bubbles that last for years that reallocate trillions of dollars of wealth. When the crashes occur, there are big macroeconomic disruptions because people lose their homes and get unemployed. And that's what Schiller is emphasizing. But I'm definitely in Team Schiller on this one. Mm-hmm. And so how is your research actually modeling and understanding the human brain in these cycles of euphoria and fear that underlie financial bubbles? So let me say just a little bit about how the experiments are actually run. 20 subjects come into the lab. Actually, there are two labs because a couple of the subjects will be lying in a brain scanner and we're using a magnetic field to see where blood is flowing into different parts of the brain every few seconds. That's called fMRI. The MRI part is the the magnets that have been around for a long time that are used to look in detail at the anatomical structure of your brain and also sometimes your knee and heart. And the F part is functional. So that means we're going to use the same magnet, but we're going to try to track the blood flow while you're performing some function or doing something. The other subjects are in a regular lab at UCLA, as it turns out, and everyone is connected through a computerized network trading screen. So they're all trading with one another. It's just that some of them are having their brain scanned and some aren't. So they're in this machine, they're having their brain imaged while they're taking part in a trading game, basically. That's correct. So their brains are being scanned while they're taking part in a trading game. Now, the next thing that's important is a bubble is defined as when prices are persistently above some fundamental value ideally a fundamental value to which prices will return if nothing else changes. Of course, it's not very satisfying to have a theory that says, well, after there's a crash, I can then say there must have been a bubble before the crash. I mean, it's not of much practical use and you're not going to get rich. So we would like to think of a bubble as something we could spot, at least statistically, you know, like an earthquake. We're not going to get all the bubbles right, but we would like to know when is there kind of a warning system that there appear to be bubble conditions. So to do that, we have to be able to look ahead. And we have to have a, a method in which we can establish the fundamentals. So if prices are too high, we can conclusively say the fundamentals 14, prices are 60, that's a bubble. So in the experiments, what we do is we create an artificial asset, but it has real money attached to it. So people can trade this back and forth at any price they want. Every period of trading, when it ends, if you hold a share, you get a financial dividend. That's actual money you're going to get paid at the end. And at the end of 50 periods of trading, the asset has a terminal value, so people get to go home, and they know what that terminal value is. And the structure is all worked out very carefully so that the fundamental value happens to be 14. It's just a measure of the experimental currency. And so if we see people persistently trading above 14, we know they've gotten into a bubble. And what happens behaviorally is bubbles are common, not rare, but the size of the bubble and the duration does vary quite a bit. So our subject pool is college students. If you take 
16 groups of 20 different people from the same group and we run these bubbles, you don't get the same exact pattern every time as we do in some areas of economics, but here you don't. There seems to be the groups, it's just that they kind of decide among themselves, oh, this is going to be a really big bubble and the peak is going to be 75 instead of 14. Or, well, this is going to be a small bubble, we're only going to go up to 23. So we do get reliable bubbles. And that's really important because unlike in financial history with the Nikkei bubble and the tech stocks and the housing bubble in 2008, we'd like to be able to rerun history over and over and over and over and then understand the conditions, you know, when are bubbles common and not, when are they really high. And then we can also start to do policy experiments and go in and say, can we really predict a bubble early on and now what do we do? Do we raise interest rates? Does Janet Yellen at the U.S. Fed get on the news and say, our neuroeconomist model tells us that we probably are in a bubble and you can trade if you want, but those of you who don't like trading in bubbles should be advised this is the Fed's view or something of that kind. I mean, that part is really far away, but it's useful to know that the point of the basic science is to also understand these things in a way that would help with practical questions, whether it's individual investors or central banks that are worried about economy-wide bubbles and when the bursting often really has dramatic global consequences. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about the structure of these experiments and a little bit of what you've learned. Could you go into some of the details about what you've actually been finding when you run these experiments with the students? Yeah, so uh, the first thing is we do get bubbles pretty reliably. The second thing is when we look at the brain scans, we see that basically there are three types of traders. They're what we call fundamentalists, or you might say FAMAs. So those are people who as soon as the price starts to lift off a little bit above 14, like 15, 16, 17, they think these prices are way too high. I'm going to sell all my stocks and put my money in a safe bond, essentially. And they kind of sit there somewhat bored but mystified. And they don't play a really essential role in the market. But the fact that they exist means there are some subjects who have a type of bubble detector capacity and they don't reduce the bubbles because they just sell and sit out. The second group are what are often called momentum or investors that chase returns. So if you run a statistical analysis of what it is that causes them to buy and sell, there's basically two things, which is if the stock went up last time, they buy. When it starts to crash, the stock goes down, they try to sell. Usually they don't sell aggressively enough, so they're not actually able to sell. So they end up hanging on to lots of shares during a crash, and they earn the least amount of money. They earn about half as much as the average trader. Mm. Is that because of just the act of buying or selling adds to their transaction costs and they lose out that way? Is that why they're losing? Yeah, so actually there's no fee. We're not gouging them with fees in these experiments, although that would be an interesting thing to explore. The momentum traders lose money because they keep buying up to the peak. They don't know where the peak is. Mm -hmm. They may think it's going to keep going on and on and on. The bubble paths are very clear. They're like a roller coaster. They kind of slowly ramp up a few percent each period. And then rather than hit a flat plateau, once they start to go down, everybody's basically trying to sell, except for a few people who are reluctantly buying, they think it's kind of a correction, like, wow, prices are off 30% from the high, this is the time to buy. It turns out it is not the time to buy. But they think it is, and they're supplying the weak side of the demand for shares. The most interesting group is the third group, what we call rational speculators or sometimes smart money. Although I should add, we don't know if they're smart money or lucky money because each of these subjects just participates once. So next we're trying to find out if somebody trades 5, 10, 20 times and becomes really pretty experienced, can they become smart money from having seen a lot of bubbles and crashes in their lifetime, basically, one after the other? 
And those people are really interesting. They also buy at the beginning during the bubble. But we think that they understand it's a bubble, and rather than sitting out and not making any money on the way up, they're gonna try to time the market and sell a few periods before the crash, or sell as quickly as they can in order to cash in. And the people who do that earn about twice as much as the average trader. But there is quite a bit of luck involved because the crashes happen very fast. And so if you time the bubble a little bit late, you may be able to only unload a couple of shares before the peak, and then you're actually selling on the way down on the crash, which you may sell at a higher price than you bought earlier, but it's not really ideal. And so you are imaging each participant's brain as they're doing this. What's going on in the human brain as these bubbles are inflating and then crashing? Yes, it's really interesting. So a general thing that's going on is there's a region called nucleus accumbens, which is most of the ventral striatum. It's in the basal ganglia. It's in an old, very central part of the brain. It's a, the basal ganglia is something that all mammals more or less have. Uh, that's a region in which dopaminergic neurons project from an area in the midbrain. And we think that's generally very important in reward prediction error, which means kind of learning how surprisingly good things are as part of a learning process and also anticipation of reward. So we find that across pretty much all subjects, when the trading results are posted and they find out that they bought or they sold, that there's activity in this nucleus commons area. It's very, very strong statistically. And it's an area you would expect to be active because it involves so many types of reward. The interesting thing is, whether people trade based on the nucleus accumbens differs a lot. So the traders who are less likely to trade when the brain says buy make a lot of money. In a way, they're, they're cautious. The traders who have the, the strongest relationship between nucleus accumbens activity in one period and buying in the next period are the losers. So essentially, they're acting on this neural signal too aggressively, similar to what Schiller called irrational exuberance. The exuberance in the sense of brain response to news about the market happens for everybody. The irrational part is trading heavily on that basis. The second part of the brain that's interesting is called insula. So insula cortex is a bilateral, left and right. It's called an interoception area rather than perception, which means it sort of combines bodily sensations and tries to kind of make cognitive sense of them, particularly negative bodily sensations. So if you're in pain or someone you love is in pain or you see a a face of somebody who betrayed you, or you smell a disgusting odor, or you're being choked, or you're uncertain about a financial situation, or uncertain about a social situation, like you walk into a room and of strangers and you're worried of whether people like you. All those things will activate insula cortex. So I've been in situations where there's people who are either so repulsed by either the sight of someone else that they just start acting completely irrationally, like they can't even speak or their movements start getting kind of twitchy. Is that kind of the part of the brain that's reacting and causing those reactions when something that you detest so much is present? Yeah, that would very likely be one part of what someone has called an avoidance circuit or a fear circuit. There are other regions too. It's usually just to remind your listeners, the we are looking for particular parts of the brain, not just the whole brain, as part of what we call a neural circuit, but it's very rare that there's one area. There's a few exceptions in language, for example, where they're very specialized areas. But with things like emotions and even reward, there often are several areas that are encoding different elements and collaborating in a circuit-like way. So the, the insula cortex, which freaked out somebody in the example you gave, in the losing traders, the traders who are buying and buying and buying and act as if this is gonna go on forever, the bubble is going to go on forever. They actually have, as you get closer to the peak, they have a reduction in insula, which we interpret it as a kind of suspension of disbelief or a sense of calm that 
there's nothing uncertain about this. The last few periods has gone up every time. That's low uncertainty. And in a statistical sense, they're right. If you're looking backward and the process is on this very smooth path, it is in a statistical sense quite certain that returns backward looking are really certain. The high earners who are starting to sell have ramped up activity in Insula a few periods before the peak. And so they're having essentially kind of a gut feeling in this bodily sensation area that something uncertain and maybe perilous is about to happen. And that's really the key, we think, to their success, is that they're getting this foreboding intuition, wait a minute, something's wrong here, and then they act on it. So if you look at whether people act on these brain sensations, the subjects who are more likely to sell when there's strong insula activity are the big winners. And the subjects who don't kind of listen to the insula, listen to their gut feeling as projected to the brain, are the ones who hang on to stocks too long, they're rationally exuberant, and they make the least money. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to ask next is, where do you see these experiments going next, and what would be some of the things that you'd like to start modeling in the experiments? So one thing we're starting to do is to look at the individual trader strategies a bit more carefully. In the first pass, we just divided people into kind of winners and losers, and you're looking for hallmarks of what makes for a winning trader or a losing trader in terms of brain activity. But there's a lot of tools from computer science, actually, which can be used to to try to figure out in more detail, you know, exactly what what are the things that are happening in experiments that are triggering buying and selling. And the early results on that look very, very promising. And also, we can use those methods on all 320 subjects who've participated in these bubbles, not just the ones who've been scanned, in which there's 44. So we really have a mountain of data from lots of different people. We know a little bit about their gender and college background and a little bit of about their genetics. And the great thing about these types of lab experiments, unlike housing markets, is we can run more and more and more experiments. So if somebody has a hypothesis about a kind of person who's likely to participate in bubbles, we can see if we can get that person into the lab and learn about it. So for example, we would love to study professional traders or people who have a lot of trading experience or people who lost a lot of money in an actually occurring bubble and see if the reactions of those folks how they trade, but also, if we can, what happens in their brain and other biological markers. Another thing we'd like to do is to study highly experienced subjects who trade in bubble markets over and over and over and over. One hypothesis is they don't actually learn to make money in the bubbles, they just learn to not participate. Like they get burned in a couple of markets and they just sit out in the future markets. So we think they're gonna either learn to act like smart money and guess the bubble correctly, and do a lot better than everybody else, or they may go through a period of being burned and withdrawn, and then as they're kind of carefully learning the bubbles, get more confidence and jump back in. It seems like in the last few years, I see more and more chatter and talk about, is this a bubble? Is this not a bubble? Maybe it's all a bubble. When's the bubble going to burst? Why do you think there is so much dialogue on all of these issues of bubbles and how this phrase has just become part of the dialogue on finance and and economics? Well, it's a combination of the fact that we don't really know very much about it unlike, say, hurricanes, which we can forecast much better and are also devastating. There's fierce debate among everybody, among average investors, among hedge fund managers, among Nobel Prize winners, about how much is this psychological and how do we model that formally and measure it, and how much of it has to do with structure and regulatory things like lockup periods for tech stocks and when founders go past the lockup period and they can sell their stock, that does certain things. So there's a lot of specialized, essentially rational expectations that have to do with rules and then psychological expectations that have to do with brains. 
So there's not a clear answer, number one. Number two, the things are huge. The ones in our lab are really little baby toy bubbles, but it's like studying tsunamis in a, in a water tank, which people actually do to understand tsunamis, but the baby model is nothing like an actual tsunami like in Indonesia a few years ago. And so the idea that bubbles are small transitory things that may happen in weird tech stocks because a few people get excited, but it only lasts a year, that's just wrong. The big macroeconomic bubbles that are often cross-country are really huge. They reallocate a lot of wealth, and particularly the housing bubble has a lot of long-lasting consequences. Yeah, devastating consequences, too. Correct. It's not just that some people lost money in stocks or lost money in their house, but house foreclosures particularly lead to big changes in communities, and then there are a lot of multiplier effects with um, unemployment. And markets like that are also quite slow to recover. Stock markets can snap back in the order of days or weeks after a large drop, but housing markets involve you know, moving people around, people literally moving back and forth, and those things operate in a different time scale. Mm -hmm. As we close out here, I was wondering if you had any recommendations to people who are trying to think about the role of bubbles in their lives or financial bubbles or also just the emergent properties of bubbles because it really is so much a part of group psychology, as you were saying, where it seems like almost the group is kind of deciding it's like an emergent property of a complex system that it's developing a different time in each trial, the peak of the bubble and how long it takes to burst, et cetera. Do you have any kind of other thoughts that you'd like to relay? Well, one thing about the housing bubble that was unusual was that a lot of people were kind of invested in it either directly or indirectly through owning the houses or moving from one place to another, thinking that the housing in Las Vegas is going to continue to boom or in Phoenix, Arizona. And the housing bubble was surprising because there is kind of an index of the fundamental because there should be an equilibrium, as we say in economics, a balance between the market for owning a house and the market for renting a house, depending on family size and just where people like to live and how long they'll live places and tax consequences and things like that. And so the ratio of the price of renting to owning has been pretty constant for decades. And you can see that it goes out of whack by a factor of about two to one in 2006 to 2008. So people should have looked at that number and said, houses are in a bubble. Now, if you want to speculate and try to make a bunch of money betting on housing bubbles, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, And there are people, particularly maybe in commercial real estate or developers who bet on bubbles by developing more houses at the bubble price as quickly as possible. But I think certainly for average investors, don't be greedy. In fact, as Warren Buffett says, when people are greedy, be afraid. And when people are afraid, be greedy, which is similar to what happens in our neuroscience and our experiments, the, the greedy traders have nucleus accumbens hyperactivity, and the fearful traders are the ones with insula cortex telling them, wow, everyone's going so crazy, this is the time for me to sell. So it's really tough to spot bubbles and beat them. An individual investor, just stay away. The second thing I think is notable is, particularly in tech stocks, not particularly in the Nikkei and the Dow and other types of bubbles or housing, but in tech stocks, there's kind of a feeling that a lot of good companies need to be encouraged and born. We don't really know which ones they are. So maybe venture capital and initial public offerings by public investors, maybe it's good socially to shower a lot of money on companies, 90% of which will turn out to be bubbles and lame, in order to make sure that the winners really succeed. So it's as if- Like phone app game kind of thing. Correct, exactly. So phone apps, social media, are receiving a lot of funding compared to, say, hardware router companies that are actually going to build a machine 
that may really leverage everything and make the apps work better and better. So imagine if there was a cure for cancer on the top of one of the Himalaya mountains buried in a small box, we think. Probably as a society, you'd want to incentivize a whole bunch of people to climb up there looking for it. And you might have to pay them a lot of money, at least the promise of a lot of money, to get them to do it because it's really deadly and lots of people die climbing in the Himalayas. And looking back, one person might find such a box and everybody else wouldn't. In retrospect, it would look like they'd went to all these silly mountains and had all kinds of crazy theories of how to find it. So I think particularly in tech, you often get bubbles in sectors like that where the fundamental value of the company is really, really hard to know. We could make a list of 10 different companies, even in some small part of the tech space, like social media. There's Facebook and there's Twitter, and then there's a thousand things coming along trying to be the Twitter of blank or the Facebook of blank. And even Twitter, for example, I mean, these are companies that may not be around in 50 years, you know, who knows, or they may morph into something quite different. So in situations like that, it's really hard to know what the fundamental is. And as a result, it's really hard to know what a bubble is until afterwards, until the crash tells you that was a bubble after the fact. So I think those are a bit different. For example, if I was talking to regulars about this, I would say it's not clear that you want to intervene too aggressively even if it would make a difference, which it may not. These are free markets and people, venture capitalists and IPO buyers can do whatever they want. But I think in that case, the fact that fundamentals are so uncertain suggests we should do something more like what computer scientists and others call explore-exploit trade-off, that what it means to explore, which is to try things out at a cost, is to pour a fair amount of money into wacky ideas, hundreds of wacky ideas, knowing that a few of them will turn out to really scale and be big ideas that will generate a lot of value in some way. Just finishing that conversation with, with Dr. Kammerer, we were kind of touching a little bit on the idea that I hear from a lot of people about why financial capitalism in its current form is an ideal system in some people's minds because the speculative aspect does generate innovation. And so they say that all of this betting on potential big players that will make gains for the financial trader generates innovation in the economy and leads to technology that we wouldn't otherwise have. When I step back and hear that argument, I just think what a horribly inefficient way to do it because there's all of these side effects like these dramatic crashes, not to mention the understanding that most of the technologies that are actually created through this process really aren't that useful from a broader perspective in meeting basic needs. I don't know. What do you think, Seth, when you see all of the kind of stock bubbles today in tech and social media and think about them in a broader perspective? I like this example about putting a box with the cure to cancer on the top of Mount Everest and then just getting many, many people, just throwing money at it to try to get people to go and, and make it up to the top of 
Mount Everest. And you're going to have many, many people who are going to try to make that, that trip because you're throwing millions and millions of dollars at that solution to that cure. But so many people along the way are going to fail. There's going to be hundreds and hundreds of people and thousands and millions of people, millions of dollars that are just going to go to waste trying to get that cure. When there's so many better ways that you could allocate that money, you could have focus groups, you could have research organizations, you could have a united research core that is looking for that cure to cancer. But instead, you have many people who are trying to invent the wheel in so many different ways. And many of those ways fail. And every time they fail, it's another wasted amount of capital. It's another bunch of investors who are going to lose their money. It seems to me like there could be a better way of doing it, Justin. I've got to think that there could be. So one other really interesting part is the human nature component that goes into creating these financial bubbles. If other people are getting something that you're not, you want to be in on it. And so if people are standing around the water cooler and saying, oh, yeah, I bought this tech stock and it did really well, or I bought this house and I flipped it for four times what I paid for it, you want to do that because other people are getting access to things and you're seeing them gain that wealth. And there's like this deep seated part of human nature that won't let you pass that up. And I don't know how to counter that because it also plays into the broader psychological aspects of international financial crises like Jim Rickards is discussing because human nature isn't evolving as fast as our technologies are. And the reason I say that is because you can look back over the last few hundred years where there has been international finance and financial crises have played out in extremely similar ways throughout history for the same kinds of reasons. I was reading The Great Crash 1929 by John Kenneth Galbraith, and there were people back in the late 1920s betting on the hottest new communication technology, which was radio, in trying to turn that into a big financial return. Well, that sure didn't work out. Yeah, yeah, it definitely didn't work out. And when you read it, the kinds of things that were coming out in newspapers and magazines at the time sound exactly like what people say now about investing in social media. And the same kinds of crises played out, and it led to this international monetary system collapse. And then all the major powers got together and figured out a new system. And because the U.S. had so much power back then, they were able to establish the rules of the game. Our brains are very much the same as they were back in the in the caveman days. We've not improved the way our brains function, the way that our brains react to stimulus, to threats, to pleasure, all these different ways that our brains are wired, are hardwired into us to react when something happens. We've not evolved in a way that's taken advantage of all these new technologies that have so recently come on into our, our lives. And dealing with these financial markets with these old brain technologies is often a very illogical way to go about dealing with things. Colin talks about wiring people into to MRI machines and watching their brains react with these to these bubble situations where people feel these these uh, surges of, of energy, these surges of, of uh, chemicals in their brain and they want to buy or they want to run away. And going with these gut reactions is not always the best way to deal with these complicated financial models. It's, it's interesting that we're trying to apply these old brain technologies to these very, very new situations. These spouts of speculative finance and speculative euphoria will be inevitable as long as we're still acting on the same basic human foundation that we have been for most of our history. And so whether we live in a financial capitalist world or some other kind of economic system, 
there's going to be bubbles. You know, if we live in a world that's mostly permaculture, there may be bubbles in permaculture because you could imagine lots of people are probably going to want to put some kind of resources into it, whether it's human physical resources in terms of labor or financial resources in terms of money or something else. And there could easily be bouts of speculative euphoria in those sorts of worlds. But in thinking about what it may be like if the U.S. gets itself in a situation where it has to be bailed out, for you, Seth, because you live in the United States, what do you think it will be like with your friends and with your family to have that conversation as it's very visible in the newspapers and on TV news that the United States monetary regime is unwinding and there's this new summit somewhere in the world where everybody's meeting around from all the major economic powers to talk about what comes next. And people are probably scared, their financial markets are crashing, and no one really knows what's going on. What do you think that'll be like? Well, Justin, this episode is being recorded during the World Cup matches. And thinking about it in those kind of terms, the United States is on very much the, uh, the level playing field with a lot of other countries of the world, which is a really interesting analogy to, to the question that you asked me, Justin, because as the United States moves away from the world dominance in their currency, oil is traded in dollars and m many of the large transactions of the world are done in American dollars because it's a very secure currency. As they move away from that world domination of currency into a more local currency with the dollar, we become much like any other nation of the world. We become, we lose our special rights, our carte blanche to go create wars all over the world, our ability to impose sanctions. People won't really listen to us in the same way when we don't have that economic backing. People don't won't, won't run to the United States dollar when there's a crisis to hide their money away. It, we become very much like any every other country of the world. We lose a lot of that privilege. And United States, Americans are very used to having privilege in the world. That's something that they very much value. And watching that privilege disappear is going to be something that's going to be pretty tough to take. Yeah, when you think about the kinds of energy and resources per person that most other countries live on, it's much lower than what the United States lives on per capita. And while there's a very wide range of distribution inside the United States on how many resources and materials a lot of different people actually use, on the whole, the U.S. is a very wealthy nation compared to most other countries in the world. And so like you're saying, where the World Cup puts the U.S. as just another country on the world playing stage, we're talking about a currency regime that puts the U.S. as just another country on the, play, on the playing field of the global economy. And sure, there's that century of, of history where the U.S. was the biggest player, but that power is diminishing. And how is it going to be when Americans have to face up to that reality I don't know. It's going to be a very schizophrenic time, and it's already playing out in many ways where people are realizing that things are broken and they realize that there's frustration. But living standards, if this scenario plays out, are going to continue to decline, uh, which I think it's, it's fairly clear to a lot of people they are. And so, you know, seeing those food prices going up and having less money to spend on vacations or trips or other things when you're just trying to struggle to get by on basic necessities, it's how the poor in the United States live already. But it just means that more people who thought they were, you know, middle class or upper class will have to live like that. And 
it's going to be a big shock to a lot of people. It's interesting to me that Jim talked about how the five largest banks in the country right now are larger than they were in 2008. They haven't gotten smaller. The too big to fail has not even been, has not even touched them. They are still getting bigger. And when they do fail, the amount of the scale of that failure is going to be bigger, much bigger than 2008. It's like when you tell a lie and you keep on telling that lie and it perpetuates and becomes a thing of itself. And by the time you get called on that lie, this takes down everything that you've built around it. And remembering back in 2008, the amount of devastation that the housing crisis brought along with it and watching all those people lose their homes and watching so many people lose their jobs and their savings and their retirements and the anger and the angst that came along with it was just incredible. And I just can you imagine that just magnified by like a hundred times or like a thousand times where people everywhere are affected by even the, you know, your friends, your family, everyone is affected by it and all retirements are gone and all pensions are gone. And gas prices rise and food is way expensive. We, we talk about these things a lot on the show, but, you know, hearing from, from Jim Rickards is, is, is really puts it in perspective. He's got to read on the pulse of this situation. We've been talking about these ideas for years now, and they have always been kind of fringe. And recently, books like Jim's can actually become a New York Times bestseller. And you see him on, you know, TV news shows and stuff talking about these ideas that the heyday for the U.S. dollar is over and the international monetary regime controlled by the United States is ending. And it it used to be people were like, oh, that'll never happen. But now I think the writing on the wall is so clear that it can actually be discussed in a public forum. But that still doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. It may be, you know, five or 10 more years before that D-Day actually arrives. It could be sooner. But these things do take a long time to play out. And I think one really important analogy that Jim makes in our conversation is that financial disasters are like earthquakes or natural disasters or hurricanes or anything like that. But in a financial disaster, you can actually legislate against some of the damage in many cases. The government can step in, whereas a government can hold a legislative session however long they want in the middle of an earthquake, but it's not going to make any difference to how the earthquake plays out in that moment. <laughs> but for a financial disaster, you can do that. And so what's happened is the financial earthquake occurred in 2008, and then the U.S. government, by all means, if we still played by the same rules of the game that we did back in 2005, the whole economy would have fallen apart. And so now with all of the unprecedented monetary policy, the entire system can be propped up and the illusion that some form of normalcy can be maintained is still there. But what Jim and others foresee is that that can't hold for too much longer. There's an end point to it. What I thought was also the best part about the interview, Justin, was when he talked about the actual skills and what people can take out right now, you know, as far as education, about learning real tangible skills people our age can do right now and, and have those skills, have those, those abilities available to them when there is no longer uh, careers and, you know, things to move into. Yeah, and so recently this month, earlier in June, you and I went to the Firefly, annual Firefly Skills Gathering in Western North Carolina, where people of all ages and generations are coming together to learn some tangible skills. And I don't know what Jim necessarily meant 
by education if he meant going to a place like Firefly and learning, you know, post-fossil fuel home building skills or things like that. But I think he is completely right in the knowledge that you have and the actual things that you can do in the world are going to be the most important investment that you can make in the future and being able to weather these difficult times. Because if the one thing you know how to do is work with spreadsheets in a cubicle for a Fortune 500 company, and that Fortune 500 company evaporates, then meeting your basic needs is going to be extremely difficult. And that doesn't mean you need to know how to do literally everything yourself, but knowing some actual tangible things can come in handy whenever there's any kind of difficult economic time, or even if you just lose your job and need to decrease the amount of money that you spend on a regular basis. And one of the people we interviewed at the Firefly Gathering was Baron Brown, who teaches people how to build homes with basic tools and natural materials on their own land with no mortgages required. Here's just a clip from a video that you'll find on the Extra Environmentalist website of our interview with Baron. Well, this is typical of what would have been built by Western Europeans probably um, from maybe a thousand years ago to maybe 200 years ago. When you build something like this, it's not completely standard. It might have a little curl in one end or the other, but you, and you can't codify it very well. And the bank is not going to want to loan money on something that's just not a real standard thing that they can see, okay, well, this is so many square feet and it's built out of this technology. And they might say, well, this is too strange for us. And that's one reason why all kinds of alternative structures are just there outside that you can't get financing on them. And that's what defines the ability to have a house in our society. And the skills that people are, are sharing with each other at gatherings like this in the western part of North Carolina are really essential to shaping this new economy, this moving moving forward with, with actual skills at the heart of it and actual tangible items to trade. And I mean, these things are very, very essential to human life. And you can't get away from them because humans have very basic needs and they need to be met. And... There have been people have been meeting these needs even before there were spreadsheets, Justin. Before Microsoft is, Excel existed, before there was window computers and Skype calls and podcasts and everything like that. So there are many, many skills to be learned, and I recommend you go out there and learn them. Yeah, so you can check out our video on our website of the Firefly Gathering this year and of the Firefly Gathering last year, where we did an interview with an expert knife sharpener named John Krauss and also filmed a lot of what was happening at Firefly. And the fascinating thing is that there's a lot of people who are coming together at gatherings like this because they know that something's happening, even if they don't articulate it in the way that maybe Jim Rickards would, they know that our way of life and our way of basic provisioning that we use to meet our needs and to interact with our communities is at an end. And so I think the important thing is not to approach these from a, I have to be a one person alone, being able to meet 100% of everything that I need by myself, but going at it from a perspective of, what is it that you really engage with in terms of the skills that you want to learn? And how can you use those to just reduce your monthly income needs? And if you can come at it from a perspective like that, there's a plethora of possibilities of things that you can learn and do. So Justin and I have been at a bunch of different events this month. We were recently in Boston for the New Economy Coalition's inaugural meeting called Common Bound, where we were live streaming the entire meeting. All the videos were put online for the world to watch. We'll include a link to those videos on 
this show's page and also we'll start linking to those actually on our site but to celebrate four years of the extra environmentalists last year we put together a nice little parody of radio lab but this year we're going to leipzig germany to broadcast the 2014 international degrowth conference organizations like the new economy coalition are discussing important aspects of life after growth and they have no way to get the word out in an effective manner and so we've been able to figure out how to use very uh, small amounts of video gear to produce video that looks basically like live television. And so we can put together multi-camera shoots of these conference sessions and make them dynamic and engaging. That's right, Justin. We can fit basically a whole satellite truck into a backpack, bring it to an event, set it up, and run a television studio quality setup at your event. I think that gatherings like this, like these, will become increasingly important because we see where the media and politicians continually trumpet that the U.S. is in an economic recovery, that things are getting better, that the financial crisis is over, and we're still waiting for that one recovery summer where everything's going to come together. And yet GDP numbers keep coming out like these terrible ones from the first quarter of the United States. From the first quarter of 2014, where the U.S. economy actually contracted by more than 2%. And I think that's just an indicator to me that we're very much in the downshifting phase, where we're downshifting from this global growth pattern of the last century into a pattern of stagnation. And then ultimately, in the next few decades, we'll downshift into a period of undeniable contraction, where things are actually shrinking. And we've talked about the reasons why that is most likely the case on a number of our shows. But as these events play out, we see food prices spiking and the kind of insurgencies in Iraq where even a little hit to global oil production can cause markets to spike and gasoline prices to go up rather rapidly. That's the kind of globally interconnected world that we live in. And with the crises of the next few decades, events like degrowth conferences, new economy coalition conferences, and firefly summits will be very important for helping to articulate the vision of what it actually means to live sustainably on this planet. If you enjoy the message that the Extra Environmentalist brings to you, these uplifting, fun talks about, you know, fun things like the economy and the neuroscience of bubbles. You can listen to the whole backlog of Extra Environmentalist episodes free of charge on our website, on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, on a device of your choosing anywhere in the world thanks to the power of the internet. You can head over to the extraenvironmentalist.com website, download your to your heart is content, and just have a great time. If you head over to the Extra Environmentalist Facebook page, you can join in our conversations, read articles that we think are interesting and funny comics that we like as well. Join the conversation, see what other extra environmentalists like yourself are saying and how they're feeling about the impending bubble collapses of the world. If you would feel really, really in love with the show, you can donate to the show over at extraenvironmentalist.com. Click the donate button, send us a check, send us a, a Bitcoin if you feel really, really into it. We love voicemails as well too, Justin, don't we? 
Absolutely. And so if you want to reach us by voicemail and leave your thoughts on better ways than financial capitalism to innovate or what you think it'll be like when the Federal Reserve goes under and needs a bailout, you can give us a call by phone at plus one nine one nine seven zero one XTRA or also on Skype at The Extra Environmentalist. And we love to hear from you with anything that you'd like to call in and say. And with all of these live events, it's definitely slowed down our ability to produce podcasts. So throughout the next few months, as we do this live broadcast from the Degrowth Conference in Germany, Keep an eye out on Extra Environmentalist for podcasts about once a month, but we're going to have all kinds of other interesting things that keep popping up on our site. The best way to share these ideas is to share a podcast with somebody, to share it with your family member or with your friend. If you feel strongly about it and you just want to drop a link on somebody's Facebook page, it's a really, really great way for people to learn about these ideas, to be turned on to these ideas, and to really resonate with the things that you're feeling passionate about. And some people who have been really resonating with the show are our fantastic donors who have sent in money to the show. Justin, can you believe these people are sending in money to us just because they like our show so much? And we actually had a repeat donor this week. Nancy's from Denver sent in some money. Thank you so very much for our repeat donors. Those people are just our bread and butter, people that we just cannot thank enough for their fantastic support. So, so Nancy, thank you so very much. And also thanks to Scott, who did not give us a monetary donation, but he donated a big chunk of time in putting a transcript together for us that we posted on the Extra Environmentalist website. And that was a transcript of our conversation from episode number 76 with Chris Nelder about energy transition. And it's amazing how we can say these things in audio format, but until you actually put them out on a blog, people don't find them or link to them. And it's amazing the number of links that actually happened out of that transcription. So we are extremely grateful to Scott and he'll be getting an extra environmentalist t-shirt for his work on putting that transcript together. Thanks also to Neen out in Idaho. Thanks Neen for that fantastic donation. And Steve in Souk, British Columbia. So thank you, Steve. Thanks to, for Randall from the Newosphere for sending in a donation as well. And you don't have to say where you're from, but we, we like it. You know, it's okay. And also to Glenn and Barbara from New Zealand who sent in a donation. And so we are grateful to everyone who donated their money to help support our continued operation as a media organization. We are an entirely listener-supported operation, so we are greatly appreciative of any funds that get sent our way. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, all you out there for four years of fantastic podcasting bliss. Just so very grateful for all of you out there for being supportive of us and listening to us. And it's fantastic. It's just like the best thing ever. Yeah, so keep your eye out on our website for links to our upcoming live stream broadcast from the 2014 International Degrowth Conference, as well as other video blogs and media that we're putting together. And we'll see you on our next full podcast of The Extra Environmentalist. Thanks to all you extra environmentalists all over the world. Right now we're getting rougher every day out there. Less jobs and less work and less pay out there. Still the price ain't gone up, same way out there. We don't see no blue sky and be gray out there. So you can't tell the youth cry, don't pay out there. You know the playground, the kids can't play out there. Man, I shot all the brown and the yay out there. Because it's a serious time. You better mind how you walk, where you walk, who you're walking with. And across the border line, 
dark at night time, me a tell them, say, it's a serious time. No time to waste and no time to mess around. Your time to shine. Never let nobody try hold you down. This a serious time, so serious. Serious time, yeah, serious time, serious time. You better hold your line. Better stay on your grind, yeah, yeah, yeah. Serious time, serious time, yeah, yeah. Serious time, you know. Stay on your grind, Funny thing about money also, um, I realized that almost all countries, almost all countries in the world are now in debt. Uh, well, except one is not Norway. Fucking <laughs> <Okay>, Norway. <laughs> I, I think the reason why they, they are not in debt is that they have lots of oil and lots of fish. And now everybody is eating fish oil. <laughs> so, so Norway doubled the profits. But, uh, but, uh, but, but all, all other countries in the world are in debt. That, like like all, all countries, there's actually more debt in the world than there is money. So yes, probably it's gonna get paid. <laughs> as soon as we borrow something from another planet. <laughs> Like we got this paid now, but we owe 10 billion to Jupiter. <laughs> it's so weird how the whole planet can be in debt. But, but I, I think it's possible because countries don't owe money to each other, but countries owe money, money to banks. And if the countries owe money to banks, how stupid are the countries to pay it? <laughs> like, because a country has an army. The, the bank has four cashiers and a cleaning lady. <laughs> we have to pay. <laughs> they have threatened us. <laughs> they sent us a letter. <laughs> if we don't pay now, they might send another letter. <laughs> what do we do then? <laughs> We have a nuclear submarine, <laughs> but they have a stapler. <laughs> like it's so weird. Like I'm sure that if, like for example, Genghis Khan would have, like, in his time, borrowed some loan from some mortgage from some bank, I'm, I'm sure that he would never have paid it. Like the bank at the door that you have to pay. Uh, well, I have. 10,000 horsemen with spears. Do I really have to pay? Uh, well, uh, no. no. <laughs> but, but it will affect your credit rating. <laughs> On the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, Stephen Jenkinson returns for a special series on death and dying. As long as you have the, the technology mania that we have, there's always a plan B. I mean, that's what the guys in R&D are in. They're in plan B generation. Nobody's planning on less. That's the deep truth of it. Growth, especially the psychological kind, remains the principal addiction of North America. So much time for the, so much time for the, 
uh, United States versus Russia here and uh, kicking that dead ball around trying to figure out who's going to unravel the international currency regime first. It looks like they're kicking it around and they're both going to need gold! Granddad, tell me again what it was like during the financial world war. Well, Great Financial World War II was pretty rough, but I'll tell you what Great Financial World War I was like. And the Great Financial Cold War, those were all really tough wars, but when I was your age, I used to have to get under the desk at school because the teacher would say, 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 say. Alright kids, an international capital bomb could fall at any minute. Oh my god, my mutual fund is going to crash. What about my retirement? My pension, my pension. That's right kids, it was so difficult back then. I lost an arm and a leg in the war. The siege of London, the siege of New York, they all lasted extremely long. Grandpa, tell me how long the siege of London and the siege of New York lasted. It lasted about four milliseconds. The computers failed instantaneously as the hackers erased trillions of dollars of mortgage-backed securities. Where did the money go, Grandpa? It vaporized like my ability to urinate standing up. I was enlisted in the draft. The bank draft, that is. It was voluntary at first, but then the bank draft became mandatory for everybody. Each side was stockpiling as many numbers as fast as they could. The Dow hit 16 million today as numbers kept increasing as the international war on Wall Street continues. Traders are on the floor fighting hard. We know we need more currency, but we don't know how much more we're going to need. Well, you thought we didn't have money for veterans from wars of the past. Just wait till you see what happened to the veterans of financial world wars. The United States Navy used to set sail on seas of endless liquidity. But as it dried up, our oceans became smaller and smaller. Is that when you learn to shovel shit, Grandpa? Shit shoveling's a mighty fine profession, young man, and you'll learn to love it just like your granddad did. So get out there and make sure you shovel away. All right, Grandpa, I had a wonderful visit. I'll see you next week. Boy, you smell bad. It's all those years of working in the family business. Horse manure shoveling. They called me the Mustang of Wall Street, and now I'm the shoveler of Horse Street. Ah, the good old days. Bye, Grandpa. It was lovely to see you. Bye.